Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. And um, I'm excited as I say we wrap up the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, looking at what is the last element. Many times people, when they look at the armor of God or they do a study on the armor of God or they look at this, they stop where Paul's allegory ends. He uses so many illustrations throughout Ephesians chapter 6 to draw... um, the effectiveness and the usefulness of the different elements that Christians are given as they contend against spiritual warfare in their life. That is, the truth of God functions as a belt holding everything up, uh, protecting us, and also giving us ground to stand on and to stay firm in as we pursue God's truth over even our own truth. He gives us the illustration of the breastplate of righteousness, That is, the righteousness in our life that protects our character testimony, that protects our heart from the deceitfulness of sin and those other elements and attacks of Satan. He gives us the illustration of the shoes of gospel peace as we realize that the truth that Christians are commended to stand in is oftentimes misrepresented and misunderstood as something that is in... um, attack or anonymity against the world. And certainly it is because God's truth, anyone who's outside of God's truth is already in anonymity with God. The scriptures make that clear. But we should understand that Christians aren't just told to be curmudgeon and disgruntled and everything else, but we're told to put on the shoes of gospel peace. That is, the same reconciliation that is afforded to the Christian saints should be afforded to those others in the world who are offended by Um, the truth of God. When the Bible says that the way that we live our life seeking to pursue our own uh, aggrandizement and everything else, we should humbly approach those situations and saying the Bible doesn't stop there, but it also offers and affords imputed righteousness of Christ through the gospel. It is a message of peace that everyone in this world is born into enmity with God, but God has already done the work to reconcile that relationship. He's made peace unto himself through the cross. And Christians should be ambassadors for that with the shoes that are ready to pursue peace and reconciliation. In fact, I think even our redemption theology, understanding redemption in our life as it applies, is also redemption to the world. In many ways, the work that God is unfolding throughout millennia, throughout revealed scripture, is that he's reconciling himself, rather reconciling the world to himself. The promises that we have to look look forward to in the last days are of a new earth and a new heaven. That's reconciliation. The same redemption afforded Christians a new life of faith is the same message of reconciliation offered in God's ultimate plan. He gives us then moving away from these elements that we put on, the shoes. I'm sorry, I forgot one. What about the helmet of salvation protecting our mind? The helmet of salvation transforming our figure, identifying us as a member of the army of Christ. And then he moves to give us the shield of faith. A defensive element, but also in many ways offensive. In that, 
It's with the shield of faith that we're able to extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy that come against Christians, that our faith is able to persevere in all things as we seek and understand that God is a sovereign God in control of all things, ultimately in control of all things, in all situations and circumstances. Flaming darts come against the church through spiritual warfare, and indeed even we see it in the powers of this earth which are under the rule of Satan, and we see that Christians have the shield of faith to persevere in all things, the sword of the Spirit, which is the truth guiding the Christian. God's Word enlightening us and revealing us, revealing to us what is God's purpose and design in all things. His Spirit dwelling inside of each Christian and guiding us, convicting the Comforter, as Scripture refers to the Holy Spirit who would come and dwell within us, guiding us, burdening us, giving us convictions, giving us desires. We're asked and we're told in Scripture repeatedly over and over again to delight in the Lord, that He would be everything that we have. And we're even promised that if we would delight in the Lord, that He would give us the desires of our heart. This truth guides Christians as we live our life and as we live our life with one another. Oftentimes people stop there when looking at the armor of God. But that isn't where Paul stops. Paul goes on and he says in verse 18, in applying all of these things, that we should be also in prayer. This morning, as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians, I want to make clear that we are not moving out of the armor of God passage. Rather, we are continuing in the armor of God passage as we look at the last element that the Christian is afforded. That is our lifeline, our communication with headquarters. That is our prayer. To do that, we have to define what prayer is. We have to look at how it interacts with all of these different elements of spiritual armor that we're afforded. We have to understand what prayer Paul is asking us to pray. And we have to understand how he's asking us to apply it in our lives. Over the past couple weeks, you all have been patient with me as our sermons ran close to an hour long each morning. I'm going to try to make a promise. I'm going to try to keep it. This morning's a little bit shorter. That's because I don't understand everything there is to understand about prayer. Prayer, in many ways, is a mystery. But that mystery not only opens our heart to a relationship with God, it empowers us as we live in a world that contends against the faith. With that said, let's pray as we read, before we read our passage this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and your truth and the armory that you give Christians access to. God, I confess that it is easy to contend against this world with an attitude that seeks our own will or wisdom. And I ask that in confessing that, not only that you would forgive me, God, but that you would also give us a heart and a passion that earnestly desires to know your will. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning as we read your word that we would be able to behold the amazing truths found in your law. 
In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all of this. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6. If you're not there already, I'd ask that you turn there and read along with me as I read out loud. I'll begin in verse 10. Our focus will be in verse 18. And I'll read all the way through to verse 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The first thing I'd like to point out is that prayer for the Christian is the energy that we have to wear the armor of God. I don't know if any of you have ever, um, I'm sure you have gone hunting or you've geared up for some sort of an expedition. Maybe you've gone hiking and you've put on a backpack and all of these different things. Carrying around the armor of God is a heavy burden. I think for Christians, we'd often like to say, I'd like to set this breastplate of righteousness down for a moment because, well, it's difficult to go to work and to live life among people who the Bible describes as heathens. And to wear this breastplate of righteousness. Belts are uncomfortable. And really, if we look at the translation, it's not the belt in the sense that we look up, but it's girding up everything. The the belt that Paul's talking about is holding up the breastplate of righteousness and carrying its weight. All of these different elements, we would like to set at least some of these aside from time to time. The ultimate truth is that when we look at what it takes to wear the armor of God consistently, every turn that we made in our study as we've moved through this passage, looking at these different elements of the armor of God, we've found ourselves pointed back to a whole and all-encompassing reliance upon God. There is no truth outside of God. There is no righteousness without His imputation. There is no gospel peace without His reconciliation. There is no helmet of salvation without the work of the cross, which He fulfilled for us. There is no transformation of our mind without the Holy Spirit guiding us. There is no leading of the Spirit without His indwelling within us. All of these things point back to a complete whole, absolute reliance upon God. How are we supposed to contend then as we go around in the world, a world that rejects God, who's in enmity with God, that the cosmic powers over this present darkness 
reckoning against what God is doing, namely in His church, how are we supposed to do this without completely relying upon Him? The secret sauce, as it were, is praying at all times in the Spirit. That's what Paul says. Contend with the Spirit of God, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, all of these things by praying. Prayer is... I mentioned it's a mystery, and it's a mystery because what, what Paul's already expounded about in Ephesians, he's given us a doctrine of grace. He's identified God's will in saving those who bringing them to himself, ultimately beginning salvation through the work of re, uh, regeneration in the life of a believer, that they could cry out in faith, that they could respond to the gospel of peace, that this reconciliation could take place. What does prayer have to do with it if God's will is sovereign and absolute? He's immutable, which means he's not changing. I think many Christians get hung up on this and they say, why do I bother praying at all? Well, God's will is going to be done with or without me. No man's strong enough to stand against the word of God or God's truth. He's almighty. He's the creator. and all. Why do I bother praying? Is it enough to say that God told you to pray? I think that it should be, but I think there's also more. God tells you to pray for a reason. He tells you to pray because he's working in your life through prayer. He tells you to pray because through prayer, you have the energy to put on all of these different elements of the armor of God to stand against the enemy. To realize that you're not standing alone, and that's not just in the church sense, that we have one another standing alongside of us, that we have one another emblazoning us and giving us strength and encouragement and edifying us and helping us to grow and to recognize the deceitfulness of sin in our own life by exhorting one another. All of these other one another commandments that give us the church and the beautiful picture that it is, but we're also standing with God. What a relationship we have that we can pray. Prayer is the energy that enables the Christian to wear the armor of God and to wield the shield and the sword. I have an illustration from Amalek whenever he was, when the Israelites were going to war in Exodus 17. I think it's interesting that as Joshua goes out into the valley and takes up the sword, Moses goes up to the mountaintop to pray. Anyone who was doing a study of Exodus chapter 17 would say that neither one was more important than the other, but it was through prayer that Joshua was given the ability to have victory. It was through Joshua's obedience that Moses was able to pray for the work that he was doing. There's a relationship between what we do and how we relate to God. Prayer is the power for victory in our lives. Paul goes on to tell us how to pray in this passage. He tells us to pray in the Spirit. He tells us to pray at all times. He tells us to pray with all prayers. All of these different commands point to the way that we're supposed to be praying as we contend with God and we seek this relationship and everything else. I say that it's difficult, especially within the context of Ephesians, to see the purpose of prayer. Well, that's simply because... We see God's sovereign hand, how his might, his almighty power. We see everything that he is in this. Well, this is the mystery of prayer. That in light of who God is, he still asks for us to respond. He still asks for us to be obedient. 
He still asks for us to be righteous before him, to seek his honor and glory. He still commands that we would pray. God desires to protect us in truth. He's imparted this truth to us through the Bible. We have this truth to determine how to live our lives. God desires for us to be righteous. He commands us to rely on Him to live righteously. He desires for us to be saved. And He requires our response to redemption. Paul tells us to pray always. that command doesn't resonate with you the way that it does with me, I don't know how to communicate exactly how important prayer is to the Christian life. How can we say that we stand on truth, that we protect ourselves in righteousness, because this is what God tells us to do, and at the same time have an attitude of apathy towards praying? Prayer is the lifeblood of the church, that we would be a people of prayer. Our covenant even mentions that we would be faithful to pray for one another. It's a part of the promise that we make as we come together to be a church, not just to be edified by the world, but to be praying for the strength, praying for the wisdom, praying for the worship of every believer who is a member of our church. We could even apply it in a bigger sense to every believer who is a member of the kingdom of God. As we think of those overseas who are perhaps experiencing more persecution than us, although I'm not quite certain that we aren't experiencing our own persecution today in America, but even as we consider praying for those who need our prayers. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6-7 that our prayers should not be like babbling words but that there should be a connection. There's a mystery in prayer, and we should ask, what does it mean? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us that we should pray without ceasing. Again, Paul echoing what he's already written, to pray at all times. I wonder why that is. Are there surprise attacks from the enemy that we should protect ourselves against? Should we be protecting ourselves at all times through communion with God? Should we always be ready to enter into spiritual warfare because we realize it is always happening? Amazon Prime released this week a new, ser- a new series um, about the Lord of the Rings. There was a quote from Gamaliel that I was perfect for our sermon, so I couldn't pass up including it in my notes. Evil does not rest. It waits. And when we put on our guard, when, it, when we put our guard down, it blinds. That's the truth in the Christian walk. I don't agree with you know, the Lord of the Rings and especially their, their weird own kind of theology that they've done. But this is certainly true about evil. It doesn't sleep, it waits. And when we've put our guard down, it blinds. What's so hideous about sin when we study it? What's so hideous about sin, especially in the life of the believer, is that someone who earnestly contends to live a life that glorifies God, the moment they put that guard down, is blinded to the own deceitfulness of sin. 
It's possible to convince yourself in such a way that the sinful walk that you've been living isn't so bad. How many sins have we trivialized in the church? One that has struck with me recently. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious about nothing, but in all things be in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Does that passage not say, do not be anxious? Is that not an imperative command? Is it not sin then to live a life of anxiety? Well, this is troubling. We could certainly go too far in applying this, but the reality is God commands us not to be an anxious people. And we could say, well, some of that's outside of my control. Certainly a whole lot of it is outside of your control. When we look at the armor of God, that's not there to give us confidence that we have the ability to war against evil on our own. It's to empower us to rely completely on God. I do have an anxious spirit. I overthink everything. Every conversation I've ever had, it has gone on for at least three days in my mind as I evaluate every word, every choice that a person made, and I've had to realize that the only way to have a genuine relationship with anyone is to accept God's grace not only in my life, but in their life. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. I am an anxious person. That doesn't come from God. What does God give me, though? What does God give me instead of an anxious spirit? He gives me prayer. But in all things, be in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, realizing that God is in control of all things. What do we miss out on by living a life of anxiety and everything else and realizing that God is working in circumstances? God's actually moving in the things that bother us and trouble us. And He doesn't want us to ignore them and just run to Him. He wants more. Real prayer is coming to God and recognizing that these things are happening in my life and giving them to Him completely. I don't know where the strange notion came up, but it seems to be more and more popular today, not just outside of the church, but within the church, that prayer should only be praying to God and asking Him to do whatever He wants. He gives us prayer not as a means just to affirm everything that he's already told us, but he gives us prayer to give him everything that's inside of us. He gives us prayer so that it can transform us. And this is what's amazing in my life. As I've committed to being a man of prayer, as I've recognized that I am incapable of wielding or wearing the armor of God without God's strength, I've recognized that in prayer, I am more aware of my sinful nature. As I come to God with prayers of supplication, God, give me this, do that, work this out. I realize that what I'm really asking God to do is to give me a heart that is compassionate to working this out in the way that he would have it worked out. Prayer in its own sense is almost revelatory because it exposes to me my sinful nature in my own heart. Even with the best of intentions as I come to God, I realize that He's actually showing me that He's working. Pray always, not with babbling, but without ceasing. Recognizing that if I have this communion with God, this constant relationship with God, if I really believe that the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of every believer, and I can rely upon the way that that Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, is leading every believer, then I can also be at peace 
with every circumstance that happens in my life because God is in control. Pray with all prayers, Paul says. But you know, there's different kinds of prayers. I mentioned Philippians 4, 6. It mentions several. Pray with supplication, thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Already there, we see there's a prayer of supplication, a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul gives us more as he writes to his protege, Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. When we pray to God, First and foremost, it is a relationship with Him. It's a surrender. It's it's confessing to Him. It's recognizing His will. It's asking His will to align with... Oh, that's a weird way to say it. It's asking our will to align with God's will. For Him to change the things that we want into the things that He wants. To be fully empowered and delighted in God is actually to ask Him to transform our hearts even more. And he does that through exposing to us what's on our hearts, which only happens whenever we're actually honest with not only ourselves, but with God about who we are. Why do you think Christians are commanded to be people of confession? Not just confession and saying, this is what I believe, but confession and saying, this is what I struggle with. This is where I fall short. This is where I'm not able to measure up. Try as I might, this is where I'm unable to yield to God. And if you think that's not the case, you either haven't been a Christian very long or you haven't been around very many Christians. What makes the church a peculiar people is that despite the struggles that every church faces, that every Christian faces, is that we continuously point ourselves back to God. Our church's mission statement embodies this. Point people to God. That's the first part of our mission statement. Pull people to one another. Prepare people for missions. Point, pull, prepare. You cannot prepare somebody to serve the kingdom of God in their workplace, in their homes, in their communities, or even anywhere else in the world unless they have first been pointed to God. You cannot pull people to one another unless it's the Spirit of God that's inside of them. What draws Christian communities together, despite economic differences, uh, despite cultural differences, despite different backgrounds and everything that influences us in different ways, even to the point that we have different preferences and different decisions that we would make and different ways that we would handle situations or even different ways that we would worship, Is that the same Spirit of God that works inside of every believer is also at work within us? The real heart of worship is in recognizing that it's not our way, it's God's way. I don't know if you guys have ever been to the hand-raising churches. I remember the first time, it made me feel uncomfortable. I was like, what's going on? 
And then I realized that God was working in that person's life and I was actually stopping him from working on my own because I was so worried about what this person was doing. I remember the first time I heard somebody preach and man, they were really fishing for those amens. They were giving themselves amens. Amen. I'm trying here. I'm not as good as my brother in Christ, I suppose. I was like, what are you doing? Well, he's worshiping God. Prayer is at the heart of this. When we realize the Spirit's working inside of us and He's actually guiding us in all these things, we realize our preferences actually don't mean a whole lot so long as God is being glorified because the chief end of man is that we would glorify God and that we would enjoy Him forever. What does that really look like? Well, it looks like every Christian saint taking up the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel peace with readiness to extend it into the world and in the church and in our own communities, taking up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit through the Word of God, through the utterance of God in our lives, and also being people of prayer who are contending in all things that God's Spirit would transform us. This is the helmet of salvation that our minds would be changed. That our preferences wouldn't become priority, but God's glory would become the utmost. Pray always that we would protect ourselves against attacks with all prayers, supplication, asking God for the things that we need, relying on Him to provide for those things, for intercession, asking Him to provide for those that I love. That he'd give them peace. That he'd give them comfort. Pastors are the worst at this. Someone told us in seminary that we were training so that we could help people in their spiritual walk. Maybe no one told us that, but maybe that's the idea that we began with. There's no one in the church that can help anybody with any problem that they are going through outside of God's strength. You know what real pastoral counseling is? It happens when you're not around. It happens when you don't see. It happens behind closed doors, when knees are on the ground, when hands are clasped together. It's through prayers of intercession that we protect one another. That we recognize, well, God, I messed up. I thought I was way smarter than I was, and I tried to use all my academic prowess to theologize and to demonstrate everything that you are and to be the Holy Spirit for my congregation, that they would be convicted about the things that I was convicted about, that, that I would convince them to be a Christian just like I am. And God, I recognize that I messed up. Because I don't rely on the Holy Spirit inside of me. I rely on the Holy Spirit inside of the whole church. God, these convictions, these things that you're leading us to, these things that you're telling us to contend for, I need you to convict. I need you to guide. I need you to lead. You see how prayer is revelatory? 
God, I need you to provide the means. And they're not just physical means, they're grace, aren't they? God, I need you to make us a people of grace so much so that as we have relationships and discords with one another, that we recognize that your grace is sufficient in all things. Even when we mess up, that we would be a people that earnestly, immediately, with urgency, approach reconciliation in all of our relationships. And finally, the last prayer that Paul mentions is thanksgiving. That we would be a people of thankfulness recognizing the way that God's already answering our prayers. Oh, it's amazing. God answers our prayers in ways that we couldn't even imagine. There's illustrations that I'm thinking of now that I can't share, and it breaks my heart because it's amazing. When God works things out in ways that we didn't even realize, well, I have one illustration I can use. This year, one of my prayers has been that my relationship with my siblings would be strengthened. I have three brothers, Dylan, Devin, and and Dawson still in high school, and there's some turmoil there, and, you know, I look for the opportunities that I can to build those relationships and to make them stronger, that I could be, you know, and I'll tell you, I I have an agenda. I think my brothers know that I have an agenda. I want them to know Christ. In my youthful ignorance, I, I thought that God would take care of what He would take care of, and I would just go on my way, but... My heart is broken for my family members that do not know Christ. And I realize that He's given me my family members and He hasn't given them to the rest of the world. And so I contend earnestly for these relationships that they'd be good relationships, that my family would see Christ in the way that I live my life, that, well, and to do that, I have to be uncompromising about what it means to pursue God. And at the same time, that I have to be gentle and compassionate. This week... Some of you guys know this. I'm adopted, for lack of a better term, so I also have three sisters. My sister messaged me this week. I've never spoken with her before. God answers prayers in ways I wasn't even praying for that, but He answered that prayer. And I recognize that He's at work in it. As a people of faith... I think in a general sense, we have undermined how effective prayer can be by either relegating it to God's will being done with or without us, or just failing to realize that part of God's sovereign will is that we would be participating with Him. Paul tells us that prayer is the energy that we have to wear the armor of God, that we should be praying always, that we should pray with all prayers. And he tells us to pray in the Spirit. The biblical model of prayer is that we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. This is important as we realize what's really happening in prayer. I said, I mentioned that we've asked God to give us the things that He doesn't tell us to hold back, but He tells us to ask with confidence, with boldness even, to enter into the throne room of God and ask Him for the things that are on our heart. Romans 8 gives us a perfect picture of what's actually happening in prayers. As we realize our fallen condition, as we realize how far away our comprehension is from the absolute revelation of who God is, and we realize this distance between who He is and who we are, I ask oftentimes, how could I possibly pray a prayer that glorifies God? In many circumstances, I don't even know how to pray. 
And you all know the passage I'm thinking about, Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Through groans. This is a phenomenal truth as I realize that Jesus tells us not to be babblers in our prayers because our words don't mean much. I, when I worked with youth more, one of the things that we would do is we would write out soap journals, and at the end of the soap journal, students would write out a prayer. And from time to time, they'd ask me to read their soap journal and ask me what I thought, and I'd read it, and I'd read their prayers, and it looked like an essay. Dear God, do this, therefore, moreover. And I see their heart in it. And it's admirable, and that's what their brains have been trained to do, to write out logical utterances so that their words would be cohesive and make sense. They have a good logos, as it were. They have a good message. God tells us to pray in the Spirit, not in babbling, but in opening up our heart. God, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know why I'm an anxious person. I don't know why I sabotage every relationship that comes into my life because whatever, but this is who I am. God, I need you. And praying in the Spirit, the Spirit takes that. And by the way, the Spirit, who is God, understands it, translates it, intercedes on our behalf, makes it cohesive, gives the actual argument to God, relents it to Him. We pray through the Son, who is our great high priest, to the Father. It's possible to pray fervently in the flesh and never see anything happen. It's also to pray quietly in the Spirit and to see God answer in tremendous ways. The reason revival in the church has always been hinged upon the effectiveness of prayer in the congregation is because when a congregation seeks God and nothing else, transformation naturally happens in our lives. Historically, we can look back at the example, and I promised you all last week that I would avoid church history, so I won't go there, but the reason prayer has always been effective is when the church is glorifying God, It naturally makes us a peculiar people. It's not about defining regulations or defining covenants or defining all of these other things that we could possibly do that says this is what makes me a peculiar people. It's about saying that God is the most important thing in my life, that I want to glorify Him in my life, that He's gentle and compassionate with me because He wants to be gentle and compassionate with everyone because he's a gentle and compassionate God. Even as we look at the, how heinous sin can be in our life and we talk about the wrath of God or the condemnation of hell, these things are certainly true. God is righteous to judge, but I ask, do you think God had wrath before creation? God's eternal. He existed before creation, an eternity in the past, an eternity in the future. He created the world and everything in it. He's the father of everyone. Well, okay, that's a different word. You guys are going to have to give me grace for using the wrong word there. 
but he's a creator of everyone in this world. We talk about God's wrath like it's an eternal attribute. I don't think that it is. Where does God's wrath come from? It comes from the overflow of his love. He created you because he wanted a relationship with you before he created everything. It's because of his perfect love that he's jealous. If a husband wasn't jealous for his wife, could we say that that husband perfectly loved his wife? I don't think that we could. Paul gives us the example of husbands loving their wife the way that Christ loves the church. God's jealous for his creation. Naturally, he's wrathful towards anything that would distract us from it. Any idolatrous way that has perverted everything in creation. The nature of man to make idol images and to worship the creation rather than worshiping the creator. I wouldn't say that wrath is an eternal attribute of God because it doesn't exist without him loving something so perfectly that he contends for it. That he loves us so much that he would send his son to die on the cross. That he would sacrifice all of the glories of heaven. That he could become flesh. That he could identify with us perfectly. That he could put himself upon the cross. He wasn't taken there. He wasn't forced to go there. He let himself be hung on a tree. Taking on the curse of all of humanity. That his wrath would be satisfied. What an amazing demonstration of love, even in looking at God's wrath. I'm not trying to trivialize God's wrathfulness towards sinners one bit. But I'm earnestly trying to communicate that God's love is seen in his reaction to to sinfulness. God tells us to pray in the Spirit because it's the power that he gives us to live lives of righteousness. To watch and to pray. Second to last point. That we should pray with our eyes open. Oftentimes we think that prayer should only be something done with our heads bowed, eyes closed. I even say it to my children. And it was actually very sweet this morning. As we were getting ready to leave, we prayed as a family. And both of the kids gathered around and held our hands. And I was praying. And then they started praying with me. They just started going off. And And I said, Amen. And they said, Amen. God asks us to maintain this relationship with Him, not just when we open up His Word, not just when we bow in prayer, but that we would be aware of our communing with Him in our entire lives. Every day, every moment, every moment of our lives, we would be recognizing that God is providing for us. Paul tells us to watch. He says, keep alert with all perseverance. Pray with your eyes open. Nehemiah 4.9, this was Nehemiah's strategy that ultimately provided the work of rebuilding the, the wall in Jerusalem. Nehemiah instructed when they were coming under attack, he said, watch and pray. That was a secret to his victory over the world and over the devil. We must be able to detect Satan when he's at work and we have to pray for God's intervention. Be spiritually minded, loved ones. As you go about your lives and you see things happening, realize that these things aren't happening because man is just awful, but because the world is under the power of Satan. 
Be mindful that reconciliation extends beyond just your personal life, but that God is contending for the faith of everyone who He calls unto Himself. And that He does that, asking and earnestly desiring your cooperation in that. Be people of prayer, praying at all times. Praying with perseverance. That doesn't mean trying to twist God's arm that our will would become His. This is the great mystery of prayer after all. It means realizing that God is working things out. Don't quit praying just because you don't see an immediate reaction. Keep praying until you see God working because He's faithful to answer our prayers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word and thank You for the relationship that we have with You. God, thank You for the church for the grace that it affords us and providing us with a way to know you and a way to be edified by you, by brothers and sisters who love us the way that you commanded us to love one another, who reveal to us our missteps, our misdeeds, and help to correct us and to exhort us as we desire to glorify you in our lives. God, thank you for your people who are a peculiar light in this world who demonstrate people who are not afraid of your wrath, not just because we've been redeemed by your love, but because we know your love. God, thank you for showing yourself to us, to the many people that are here that have professed faith in you. Lord, we ask as we prepare to sing and we reflect on the words that we've heard this morning, that your spirit would continue to guide us in our response, that we would know how to respond, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we prepare to sing? Sing number 300.